Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast. This is episode 523. My name is Tim. I am your host. I am joined today, as always, by, I call him dad, you can call him Steve. Uh, and we're very, very excited today to welcome our uh, special guest, now friend of the podcast, I think I could say confidently, uh, Dr. Cherith Nordling. Cherith, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. We're really glad to have you here. Cherith is... Uh, She's a professor, a theologian, a writer, a grandmother, uh, and so we're <laughs> we're really excited uh, today to just dig in a little bit with you. We're going to be talking through some stuff from uh, Matthew chapter eight, chapter nine, and I think we're up to the halfway point of chapter ten. So um, I think we're just going to kind of throw a few questions your way. You and I were joking earlier. I said you're a super great interview because I I just say the couple words and you just go and give us pure gold for 20 minutes. It's fantastic. No so, pressure though. Yeah, no, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Today I came on just to listen. Isn't that what I was supposed to do? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> uh, um, all right. So I'm, I'm just going to throw this one out here, and we'll see where it goes. But if we're doing Matthew chapter 8 through 10, then we'll start with Matthew 8. And I, I was reading it again today, and Jesus says this funny thing. He says uh, in verse 20, he says, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He, of course, has said this in response to um, somebody who's just said, Hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus is basically saying, like, Well, you got to count the cost. And it got me thinking, like, are, are we too comfortable, particularly in the West, perhaps? Like, are we, are we really following Jesus if we got a nice house? Are we, too, are we too comfortable, or do we all need to move out, live under a bridge somewhere to be followers <laughs> of Jesus? <laughs> Yeah, if you if you have more than a den, I guess that's the question, right? Um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. so say, you're in a den, it looks like, so you're good. Yeah, sorry. Maybe Jesus was just asking about the size of where we're <laughs> right. I guess uh, what I hear behind that question is, are we always, first of all, uh, recognizing that all that we have is Jesus's? Right? Mm-hmm. It's all belongs to him and it's all gifts. And it's all gifts in and for the moment and the season to be lived as gifts and to be given as gifts. So the minute we start talking about it as mine, or it starts feeling like I become owned by the things I have, or my possessions begin to um, dictate how much I'm willing to listen to the Lord, then we're in big trouble, right? And I guess then that attaches to even the more primary question I hear behind that, which I think is the most important one, which is um, as we look at what Matthew is asking us to see in these two chapters, ultimately what he's really doing is saying, and now I want you to be like me, right? Mm. Which means that really I'm listening to the Father and I'm moving in the life and the power of the Spirit. So the minute you start having things that, tell you that there are other priorities that you need to listen to, um, even if it's your monthly mortgage statement, right, that's coming in. If that's the thing that actually keeps us from being submitted and curious and longing to be part of what Jesus is doing, that he would actually ask us to be part of with him, then, then we don't listen, right? Then we're like, please don't talk to me because I really have my stuff. <laughs> I need to figure out what to do with it or how to take care of it or how to pay for it. And so I think I just see in that little moment with Jesus, you know, people who are kind of like, but wait a minute, I just had this other 
priority that I just need to sort out and then I can give you priority, right? And, and Jesus isn't necessarily scolding. He's just saying, the minute we start doing that, it's really, really hard to let him prioritize for us and to let listening be the first thing we do instead of telling him what Mm. we're going to do. Yeah. Let me ask you a question regarding listening. Uh, like for you personally, how do you listen for the leading of the Holy Spirit for for what what Jesus is calling you into in that moment? Um, well, if you look at my little life and think I look like I'm sitting in a cave, <laughs> <laughs> our, our little cave is really uh, an answer to listening, um, ironically. So I'll just use it as an example. Um, when we, about a year and a half ago, a little before COVID, um, things began to change up in my work and in some sort of big picture ways. And as I was sort of processing those things through and asking the Lord to help me see what needed to kind of be finished, what needed to be healed, what needed shifting um, in me or in my circumstances, once I began that process of talking and listening around those kinds of things, very surprisingly to me, this, this thing sort of came up inside of me. And then just once it was there and I could see it, I couldn't not see it. And once I heard it, I could not hear it. And it wasn't the Lord. It was the Lord letting me hear my heart's desire, which was actually to live near my children hmm. and my first granddaughter. Because, in the three generations of the fee family that's gone before me, we've always lived thousands of miles away, generation to generation. So my parents always lived thousands of miles away from their parents who were in Alaska on mission, right? Or my parents were in Canada and we were in Boston or San Francisco or, or Chicago or wherever. And so the idea that we would actually be close to one another, I actually felt a little bit, um, guilty like oh lord i i don't want to make this desire get in the way of the thing that you actually really want to do for me instead of him actually picking up that language that matthew does right that it's like Luke says actually if if you would give these good gifts to your children why would your father in heaven not also give good gifts to his children or to give what we would ask for so i did it like for the first time at 59, <laughs> I just said, you know, Lord, without that becoming the first and primary thing, if this next thing includes that, I I just want to put that out there. And I want to ask that you would give that to my children if it's right. And lo and behold, within a month, my son says, you know, Mom, we just keep wishing all the time that we were near our family and I just wonder if we need to put some traction to that, right? Like whether the Lord would let us do that. So yeah. long story short, within six months, um, we began to think about coming back to this city that we lived in before. And I never thought we'd come back to. And God not only called us back, um, but gave us a house. And at the same time, he called our son back and gave him a job in the town next to us and gave them a house even before us two blocks away, unbeknownst to each other. (laughs) And so during COVID, the Lord basically, as everybody else is just staying quiet and sort of hunkered down, the Holy Spirit is just moving these beautiful pieces around 
And on the day that we were looking to go into these like five or six houses that the real estate agent had lined up for us, where you could go in for 10 minutes or less with your hazmat suit on because of COVID <laughs> and, and then sort of hope that you were discerning whether this is the place you should live. Uh, we prayed at the beginning of that day that if there was something that we were to see, if there was a house that God had set aside for us, steward, that we would see it. And after five of them, and my husband was just hot and tired in July, and he just sat out of the curb. He says, honey, I just want to go back home, and I don't want to do this again for six months. <laughs> and so we just sat there on the curb. I said, well, let's go back to our question and our request of the Lord. Is there something that he's given us to see? And in that moment, we looked at each other, and we went to the realtor. We said, could we please ask if you could get us back in for 10 more minutes to this little house. It might be the one. And it was the one. And unbeknownst to us at that moment, it was the one two blocks away from our kids. So I think that listening and that just constantly kind of just checking is not for God to take us way off the path into some crazy space that he's in alone and wishes somebody else would be in, but that Mm. more often than not in my life, because I really want to live my life with him, he's like, great, I'm, I'm already here, Cheris. Would you like to be present to what I'm doing? And this is not my will over and against yours. Why don't you have the courage to actually let the desires of your heart be known because I put them there, right? Like I am longing for your family generations to know me in the ways that your students and other families and church families have known you. So anyway, it just, I think it just becomes a matter of practice and always <laughs> I talk myself out of it, right? I'll be like, oh, that must not have been me or the Lord. That must have been me. And and then he's just kind enough to keep bringing that around, right? Yeah. In some way, through someone else to keep discerning that. Yeah. So, <clears throat> and what I hear you saying is um, that it really starts with your, your own heart and your heart's desire to be close to Jesus and to be Christ-like. Um, and that's how you can be, that's what you're checking your motives against in terms of, you know, whether you've got selfish motives, um, <clears throat> whereby your desires are really to build yourself up and get what you want, versus mm-hmm. if your primary desire is to be with Christ, to know Christ, to reflect his character, then you can begin to actually trust that voice that that you're hearing within. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. Psalm thirty-seven: the, <laughs> If we'll delight ourselves yeah. in the Lord, mm-hmm. then He gives yeah. us the desires of our heart. Yeah. yeah. So, what and there's beautiful. there's two ways that you can interpret that because it's either He places desires in your heart that honor Him and reflect His will for your life, or He just gives you what you want. Is it both? Well, <laughs> One it, and then the other, could I suppose. Be, but but it. <laughs> It relies on the delight in him. Mm. You know, that's, that's, that's where the you guardrail, yeah. you know, delighting in him. Yeah. And I think that delight, if the delight really is, uh, to just put it straightforwardly, uh, if it's really to, to not only love and honor him and worship, but to hang out with him, right? It's, yep. yeah. it's like, I know my husband so well. So many times during the day, I don't have to wonder what he might think about something. I know what he would think about this, right? Or I know where his desires are. And so when I begin to ponder something that includes him, 
most of the time, I'm not wondering, right? And when I do, that's the stuff we need to talk about or whatever, because I really want to hear his thoughts on that. So I think in some ways, the delighting in the Lord is a beautiful shorthand for saying, this is a person who has your heart, right? And whose heart belongs to you. And, and so in a sense, you already, the things that you long for, the things that you want become more and more shared over time. And, mm-hmm. and, shape each other's way of knowing one another. So yeah. I, I think those things just really each other. Thank you, Steve. That's, that's just right on. Yeah. All right. So that leads me to another question. It's a question I asked you, Dad, a couple weeks ago. And Cherith, I'd like to put it to you. As we talk about delighting in the Lord, there's this other concept that Dad was talking about. Um, I think it was out of the beginning of Matthew 9, where they were all in awe of Jesus. Uh, and... Uh, it brought up this concept of the the fear of the Lord. And I said, you know, can help me understand the fear of the Lord better? Because here we've just talked about delighting in the Lord. And to me, the concept of fearing the Lord seems diametrically opposed to that. So when we're told to fear the Lord, what does that mean? What does it look like? Uh, well, Steve, since <laughs> you went first. <laughs> Um, and you're not going to give me a hint. I'll just tell you. <laughs> I, I, I won't give you a hint. Okay. <laughs> no. I almost we'll did, but, how but I won't. We'll get out of this one. <laughs> <laughs> I guess one of the things that I I see all the way through the Gospels all the time, coming straight out of the mouth of Jesus, and as we're getting ready to do this revelation class, right, for the a good portion of this upcoming academic year, and reading in Revelation as well, Every time there's an announcement or there's a, a way of God letting himself really be present, whether it's through an angelic visitation or a prophetic word, so often, in straight out of the mouth of Jesus, it's, don't be afraid, right? This is huge, and everything inside of you just wants to go to terror because that terror is just accompanies this unknown. Hmm. And I think Jesus invites us into knowing, right? That's the prayers of Paul, that we would know how wide and deep and high and long is the love of God, that we would grow in the knowledge of God's wisdom and grace and love for us, that that we stop being afraid because we actually know this one who loves us and who we love. So I think the word for fear that we hear picked up there is not about being afraid of God. Right. It's a word for really um, in my as I hear it and read it, I always sort of hear the Lord remind me that even in the intimacy of a relationship with him and that reminder always comes in the context of corporate worship and sometimes just private worship, which is that he really is the creator and ruler of the universe. Right. That my elder brother is the one who has made all things and rules over all things and that that familiarity is such a beautiful gift, but it's always to keep reminding um, me when I start thinking that familiarity means I could just kind of, hey, <laughs> and and just be aware that the reverence that is yes. sort of due him, the honor that is due him, the, the celebrations of Revelation 4 and 5 and 7 and 11, right? It's like, this is the one who sits on the throne, even if he's shorter than you and looks like you and everything else. Like, this is 
this is who this miraculous incarnate one who is your tender and gracious and loving brother and has brought you home to your father. This is God. So I think that's the beginning of wisdom, right? Is that we suddenly keep calling, oh, that's right. To keep remembering who he is first and then who we are and get to be in relationship to him. That is the beginning of wisdom. That is where all things finally find their realignment as human image bearers. And so I think that's a call. I don't think it's anything to do with actual um, being afraid of, but I, I do, I do hear those stories at the Mount, at Mount Sinai. And I think of me just, you know, watching some of those things that Jesus is doing going, man, like, I would have been shaking, right? There is something really amazing. And so it's just holding that wonder and that beautiful intimacy of relationship with God, literally held with Jesus in the bosom of the Father. How do those things be held together? And I think it's by always seeing him for who he really is. Hmm. Well, that was perfectly in sync <laughs> so you get 10 out of 10 for Nailed that answer <laughs> I, I even i even referred if i remember right to revelation 4 and 5 and 7 and 11 but i think we need it Cherith. i think so because you know the church never goes forward in a straight line it's like a sailboat that's tacking and yeah. um I, I think that we're d discovering you know to use a term that we like we all like the beautiful gospel, mm -hmm. but the beautiful gospel is not a casual gospel. You know, I can be I can be informal with my wife, but not casual, right? Not just taking her for granted. And I think that that's that's what I said. I don't know x weeks ago. Uh, I still stand by that, and I think that the church needs to reestablish in itself, in its experience, especially I think the Western Church, um, mm -hmm. this reverential, this awesome hmm. uh, awareness, yeah. the, the fear of the Lord. Um, you know, I was just talking with a pastor a couple of weeks ago about the need to always create sacred space when the church gathers and not mm -hmm. slip into being a pep rally or a, I got to feel better than when I came in, but sacred space I think it's all tight. And I was just reading Ezekiel this morning. What did he do when he encountered the glory of God? He hit the deck, <laughs> yeah. just like Daniel, just like John, you know. So, all right, let's 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 talk brass tacks for a sec, because um, you and I come from a, a more charismatic background, a more um, currently our, our church environment that we're worshiping in on a Sunday is a more charismatic place. How can we, in the modern Western charismatic church, create sacred spaces? Like, really, I mean, like, in the, we, our services are typically 75 minutes long, maybe. Um, what would it look like to tack a little bit more in that direction? Uh, and Cherith, maybe I'll put that to you first. Yes, because uh, I've got to just button my lip. I've got a <laughs> yeah, hundred you things I want to say. <laughs> uh, well, let me say that your church context is probably really familiar to me um, from most my own Pentecostal upbringing and lots of vineyard life and Society of Vineyard Scholars and lots of what we would call Presbycostal life and all the, <laughs> all the other <laughs> forms of which I've 
watch um, God's Spirit be among us as a people. And I think that sometimes um, in our Pentecostal slash charismatic, i.e. expectant sense that the third person of the Trinity actually is God with us and for us and among us, right? That we need to expect that. That we can get really excited and we can get really noisy. And I don't just mean noisy in praise. I mean noisy in, Lord, this is what we long for you to do, right? Because we long to see that and we begin to pray towards these things that God would do, etc. And in the context that I've come from, if there was any gift I wish had been given to me in the first um, at least 20 years of my adult life that wasn't, in those beautiful spaces would have been more silence, actually. Hmm. Because suddenly when you are given the chance to be quiet, and I mean in, in, a, in a corralled way, right? In a way that gives some good boundaries, but to, to be invited into the presence of the Lord in a way that expects that that encounter is not that we have come and now we're asking God to show up, but that rather God is present and are we ready as a people to be in the presence of the living God? Wow, and yeah. that the transformation, the participation that God would let happen with us and to us that really comes through encounter. Actually, for me, the older I get, the more I'm sitting with a with a people gathered, hearing the word, and then just being able to be given spaces to just be quiet, to let the spirit speak in this space. So the spirit speaks first, right, and us yeah. respond instead of us sort of whether through praise or worship or petition or whatever else, we, we do so much talking, right? And then we do so much explaining for him. And then like maybe a minute here or a minute there, we might let God get in a word by himself. But I think that for me and my person, it's just one little practice, but I would, I would ask for more liturgical reading of scriptures so that, that we get all four Old Testament, we get the Psalms, we get an epistle of a church working this out, and then we get held together in the gospel story, hmm. and let the word dwell in us richly, right? That will take a good eight minutes. And I love that. You can tell where I'm going in my worship life nowadays. And then to have at the time of the table or in what other time that's dedicated, a place to let that word go richly that isn't necessarily being led from the front, that somebody isn't talking at me and telling me even what I'm supposed to listen for, but then potentially to invite, what have we heard? What is God asking us to attend to? I think we would listen to a short sermon better. I think we would pray better. I think we would, all kinds of things would happen in that space in a way that would leave us better for having been together with God yeah. and one another. Yeah. All right, now I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to kind of put on your pastor hat from your church planner hat from 20 years ago, just so that there's it's coming from a place of empathy. Because my guess is, you know, there's a lot of people, and and Sherith, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think a lot of people would actually at the very at, at the beginning would probably grow uncomfortable with that silence. A lot of us, uh, you know, the world is a noisy place, and silence is not something we're accustomed to encountering. 
Um, is that a scary thing for a pastor to yes. uh, who's leading a service to just leave I, space? I for? had to wait yeah. to think about yeah. that. <laughs> yes, it is because we know that we're inviting people uh, into an area of discomfort. Mm-hmm. Because um, if I am not talking, or there is someone talking in a way that I anticipated, then I'm not in control. And we tend to give, truthfully, lip service to Mm -hmm. we're led by the Spirit, but here's our order of what we do. (laughs) And, and, you know, and liturgical churches have a a clear order, and and the more charismatic third-wave churches think they don't, but they do. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yes, that's hard. Um, My answer, Cherith, is so similar to yours. You know, one of the things, you know, one of my mentors was John Wimber, and he used to go after it like a heat-seeking missile. He says, no hype when we're together. Don't try to do the Holy Spirit's job. Mm. And yeah. so in his tutelage, we did learn some silence. The yeah. other thing I was glad to hear you say is about some liturgy. You know, truthfully, uh, well, let's just be honest, truthfully, uh, many, if not most, charismatic churches have probably got less scripture reading um, in uh, whatever, in six months than a liturgical church does in two Sundays. And I agree that that going through, you know, typically a three or four year cycle, but going through um, not only educates, but it feeds the spirit and soul of yeah. of the parishioners. So I would agree with you. I think more more sacred space, which we've said, mm-hmm. I would say silence, amen and amen. And and liturgy and and for me when I do house church I even tie in not all the time but I tie in the creed one of the creeds mm-hmm. usually the Nicene or the Apostles for the same reason that we're we're rooted in deep truths um, so that's my answer yeah and and I would just suggest even as you said them suddenly realize that actually both of the things. Both of those are, are listening exercises, right? Yes. So we teach children to speak. We teach them to read. We teach them to write. We don't teach them how to actively listen. We don't teach them how to say, this is what I have heard, right? That says, I'm really attending to you. And and so we are, it's, so, it's our worst skill that we bring as people to to our relationships with one another and I think to our worship life. But both of them, to sit and just listen to the different ways that the Lord is happy to speak to us through these incredible poems, right? These beautiful psalmic songs and poetry and narrative and exhortation. Like the fact that God's like, I'll commandeer that thought form and that, you know, literary form and give you a way to hear in beauty and in practicality. Your story that's held in my story. You just you need to hear that you're in this life. Amen. And then you need to hear. <laughs> so when John Weber would, you know, finish whatever we, else he was doing, but to say, and now we need to be quiet and we need to wait. And he would yes. say, come Holy Spirit, right? Yes. And then it would just be quiet for 
a little while because he wasn't going to try to orchestrate or tell God what God was supposed to do. And as a young 20-something, sitting in those MC 5, 10, and 11 classes with him, with people from my church, that taught me, even for him to teach about prayer, to say, yep, you come to prayer with one ear <laughs> listening to the person and one ear listening to the spirit, that you can speak in parts, but you're always, always, always listening, right? That there's a posture of submittedness and humility and reverence that really is the fear of the Lord, and that is actually wisdom. And in that wisdom becomes compassion, because the need of the other becomes more important than your own when you're finally done worrying about whether I'm a good listener or not, right? Which then turns it back in on the self or, oh, no, I'm uncomfortable. But if actually the expectation is that we all have agency and that God would actually like us to be here the same way he is for us here in this space, how do we be for one another as the gift that God would give us to each other that actually takes paying attention? and listening to him. And and yet when he can get us to do that, he's able to give such amazing gifts to us as his kids. And so I, I guess that's, yeah, just one last plea for, um, I, I don't even know if it's silence, but, but Tim, I, I think silence is great. I think it's the invitation to what does it look like to listen, even if it's a Lectio Divina kind of listening, where you're going to hear this and now listen again. And what, what, what is God bringing forth? I think that would be an exercise as a disciple of Jesus that I just would really love to have a great mentor in because it takes a lot of work and a lot of practice, especially in communal gatherings. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I see Sharon had written a question there. I think we've I think we've answered that, Sharon. I suspect, um, but I would encourage our listeners feel free to write questions in. Uh, I've got the YouTube screen in front of me right now, so that's what I can see. Um, but I'm sure Isaiah, if there's questions in Facebook, he can text them to me, uh, and I can get that as well. But um, so feel free to engage with us in the comments. We'd love to hear from you, and we'll definitely discuss your questions as you type them in. Um, I think if it's all right, I'd just like to take this moment to, for a little advert advertising break uh, to say that this episode is brought to you by the Impact Nation's Skills and Business Programs. Uh, I was uh, delighted to receive an email from my friend Meenakshi, who is um, one of our program runners in India. Uh, I had sent her a note a couple days ago just asking her about our alternative basic business curriculum. Um, for those who don't know, Impact Nations, we, we really believe in helping people to reach self-sustainability so that they are able to uh, <clears throat> build their own life moving forward. They can pay for their own children's schooling and, and groceries and things like that rather than waiting for us to show up with a meal. Uh, and so the ways we do that is we teach them very marketable skills. Uh, in India, we're doing uh, some sewing and things like that in um in Uganda, we've got catering, we've got uh, digital skills like website development, graphic design, um, uh, party planning is one of them. It's, it's a wide variety of stuff. It's amazing. Uh, but uh, included in all of those uh, vocational schools is our basic business curriculum that we've licensed from an organization called Alternative. Uh, and it is special curriculum designed specifically for people who are kind of on the, I would say, barely literate uh, and a lot of uh, illustrations and, and things like that. 
And uh, so we've been using that in India. We actually brought it to India just before the pandemic. We, um, uh, one of our uh, our board members, uh, she uh, is a teacher for alternatives. So she went and, and did a train the trainer session uh, just before the pandemic happened. Uh, so I was just checking in with Minoxi to say like, hey, with the pandemic and stuff, have you guys been able to make use of that at all? And I was delighted to hear. She said, yeah, in fact, we've got it. We, we do it twice in the program. We do it at the beginning of our eight, nine month vocational school and then we do it again at the end when they've got more context and they can really grasp the concepts once one more time. She says, we're seeing people really grasp the concept of how to price their items when they go start their own business. How do I set prices? How do I know how much to charge for my stuff? This is one of the things we've found uh, routinely is folks don't actually take into account how much it costs to run a business. You know, they they may think this is how much I paid for uh, the materials to make this item, but they forget about, you know, the cost of electricity to run your sewing machine or to buy uh, the advertising space on, on Facebook or whatever. So really learning how to actually become profitable. And she says people are really, really encouraged uh, with the early results from that. But then she told me, and this is really cool, she says, we've actually taken this same curriculum and are including it in uh, the house church. We've actually brought it to the house church. And so wow. now people in the house church are also exposed to this stuff and are learning it for their own personal finances. She said the number of people that are coming to us and saying, thank you so much, because now I know how to budget for my family. And we're, we kind of found all those areas where oh, maybe rupees were slipping through the cracks, so to speak. And so they're able to uh, stretch their own budget, which is really encouraging. So uh, just a little plug today for our skills and business program. I, sh- I should also say, you know, the pandemic, uh, because of the number of shutdowns, the economic shutdowns we've seen in nations like India and Uganda, a lot of the folks that we helped to get businesses started and we're doing well, uh, th- their businesses are gone because they went for months at a time without having any customers or even being able to go out into the marketplace. Uh, And they reached a point where they, of course, had to sell what they had uh, for what little they could in terms of materials or or tools or things like that uh, just to be able to eat. And they're really left with no business whatsoever. And it's not their fault. They took our training and they were thriving. And since then, you know, the pandemic has just cost them everything. So when all of this nightmare is over, we're going to be in a season of rebuilding for those folks who had already got something started but need to start from scratch. Uh, so we need to start filling that war chest so that we're able to get them started again with small business. So if that's something that just uh, really uh, delights you, you know, if, if, if that's really stirring your heart, I would encourage you, head to impactnations.com skills. You can learn about our philosophy of how we do this, uh, how we rescue people from dangerous situations. We restore them with, with this training, but also ongoing counseling and discipleship. And then we release them into the marketplace to go flourish uh, the way God intended. Uh, so impactnations.com skills. You can give right there at that page. And I promise you, your gift is going to mean the world to somebody who is just waiting to get started again. So thanks so much. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming. All right, Cherith, I'm going to hit you with one that I actually was supposed to ask Brad when he was here a couple weeks ago, but then I forgot. So my bad, but now it's your problem. Uh, (laughs) uh, We got talking a couple weeks ago. I don't remember why or how we got on there, actually, but um, about... When God basically said uh, in Isaiah, like, hey, I, 
you think I want your sacrifices? You think I want your your worship the way you're doing it? Like, no, Isaiah 58, like, that's not the kind of worship I'm looking for. Uh, and so the question I asked Dad, and then he he punted to Brad, who I forgot to ask, so <laughs> now I'm going to put it to you, is if, if God, on several occasions, says through the prophets, like, I, I don't want your stinking sacrifices— why did he ask for him in the first place? Why do we have books like Leviticus and and you know all of the the prescribed means of worship through festivals and things like that uh, throughout Deuteronomy and such? Why, why did he give us that and then say I don't want it? Well, I don't think I think that's a great question, and I think I I've probably asked it at some point as well. But I think over time, and even in this context, as we look at how that sort of comes back up, right? Again, in this section between Matthew 8 and 10, where where Jesus is happy to bring back Hosea 6, right? Just right here. And what I, and, and as we're watching the contrast between what the law was given as a gift to keep allowing for a, a beautifully aligned relationship between God and his people for the sake of the world, right? And so their worship life was the space in which the regular rhythms of God's redemptive care for them were celebrated, were recognized, that the ongoing um, sacrifices and the sacrifices that happen around the feast time that these become the markers that actually allow sort of the first part of, say, the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments, that this is who I am. And then the last is sort of, this is who you are, right, in me and with me. And Sabbath, in this sacred space, talk about carving out, like, holy space and sacred space. Like, in this space, it helps you to remember who you aren't, as well as who you are. And to keep those things in proper correspondence. And if those things become products of, of authentic relationships, they actually keep realigning it, right? Which is what communion should do. Instead of it mm. getting all wonky, where suddenly we think that the words that Paul is giving to us in, in Corinthians is somehow asking us to do this navel-gazing self-examination of, am I worthy to come to this table? When the whole celebration of the table is, no, isn't that fantastic? <laughs> right? like, like, we're all here and none of us did anything to get here. Right? It's just the love and the grace of God. And so the minute you start eating or having this celebration in a way that causes you to forget the character of God and forget who you are, then Paul's like, there's some stuff that needs to happen here. Like, you need to remember whose you are and remember the one who invited you to find your life joined to his, right? And what he did on that night. Like the whole thing is in the context of of, of chapters, even though he's not writing chapters. You know, these long sections of how are you going to live a life together as Jews and Gentiles with all this former festival worship as Gentiles too, right? That's loaded with meaning. How do you not doubly load all this other meaning that isn't supposed to be part of the gospel? I think that's just part of our rhythm all the time. I think it's part of masking and not masking right now. It's part of the, what does it look like to say, well, what does my freedom actually let me do? If it's a freedom given from God 
as a gift for the sake of the other. And so I think that when Jesus, or when you hear God in the Old Testament say that through the prophets, and then you hear Jesus echo that again, it's not saying, yeah, that was a really bad idea. Sorry, I don't really want any sacrifices. You know, it's more to say, you guys have all begun to actually rely on the fact that this little observance that you do is the thing that you think marks you off as my people in the world, or that satisfies some kind of relationship in your head between us. But actually, the way that you are doing this sacrifice versus the way you're living your life, no one would ever know what I look like if they look like you. And your sacrifices are actually, your worship life is to reorder you to keep remembering whose character and whose image you're being conformed to precisely so that the world has a place to look to see what God looks like. And he's like, when you're, when this starts replacing life together, I couldn't give a rip. I want a contrite heart, which a proper offering to God would actually do, right? I want you to be set apart to know who you are as a righteous people, which a proper feast sacrifice would do. But only if you come as a people where that sacrifice is sort of an extension of your whole life together. But the minute one replaces the other so that you don't have to show up, that's in every, in real ways. Um, I was struck in my reading of Matthew this week. There's a place where Eugene Peterson in the message takes that little phrase when the, the blind men, right, who Jesus heals. In Matthew 8, he says, it, I think it's like the, my NIV, it says something like, um, according to your faith, right, so be it, or you, you will be healed. And, and Eugene takes this little phrase and just says this, I actually wrote it down, it says, become what you believe. Oh, I love but you've it. had this encounter, you've had this experience, now become this, this wow. become what you've just put your faith in, which is actually me. And then the rest of this next couple of chapters are, so you want to look like me, it's just told you what God looks like, and doing all these things I've just done, I'm going to tell you what that looks like, and I want you to go off in pairs, and I, I want you to begin to practice becoming what you know is true right? Becoming what you believe. And so I think we, we hear these things. And the thing we always have to uh, do, I always have to do is to keep asking now, why did you say that? Like, in what context are we hearing God say something that just sounds like 180 degrees opposite? And usually he's just sounding off like the rest of us do in his exaggerated way, because he's really trying to say something very, very important. And so I hear that both in the Old Testament and the new, and this is what I hear picked up in Paul's language too, right? We become the sacrifice, the one who has sacrificed himself for us. Our lives as a people together, as a temple of God's Holy Spirit, become a living sacrifice. Not not a zillion little living sacrifices all bunched together at church, but in our life together, we become a living sacrifice that ministers and manifest the character of God in our life together, and the world goes, I don't know what that is, but could I get in on that? (laughs) I have never seen that. And if that's what God is like, sign me up, right? And God's like, yeah, that's that's been the mission from the beginning, is that you would look like me and know who you are in that context. 
Yeah. Now you've just said something that opened my eyes a little bit. I'm, I want to go back and study Romans twelve one a little bit more uh, because I I've always read that individually, right? Like live my life as an individual as a living sacrifice. But the way you just incorporated the community, the ecclesia there, is really interesting. Dad, do you you got any thoughts on on our life as a community of believers? Um, expressing who God is as a, a living sacrifice in the community. And that's that's to back to saying this is the divine life, the, the life of the kingdom that yeah. everyone's meant for, which is why the end of that wonderful little uh, section in Acts 2, verse 47, and the Lord added to their number daily. Yeah, It's because of what you just said, Cherith. It's irresistible. You know, the... Um, you you may not know this, but but I have a spiritual son and daughter who head up a house church movement with nine hundred thousand people in it, and it started with the two of them as Hindus who encountered Christ twenty eight years ago. So I got excited a minute ago when Tim said, "Oh, they're starting to do that in the house church." I thought, "Oh my word, nine hundred thousand people!" But wow. I've spent a lot of time there. I go to India more than any country. What I see is what you're talking about authentic worship and outward worship. They worship, when I say worship, we think of singing and guitars and it can be that, but they worship with their lives, whether whether they're in smushed into a room, 40 or 50 of them, or whether at KFC, where they love to go because they call it Kingdom (laughs) Fellowship Center. But but it's it's what you're talking about. It's, It's that... Deep authenticity, so that, like, I was so glad that you brought up the Eucharist. You brought up communion. Yeah, communion is an expression of what's going on in my life, and I believe it just keeps deepening and refreshing. But communion isn't a box that gets ticked off, just like going to church on Sunday isn't a box that gets ticked off. And I think that's what I think that's what we're talking about there. By the way, I love that Eugene Peterson quote of of Matthew eight. Yeah. And and just for fun, we won't do it right now, but if anybody's got the message at home, go to Amos 5 and read <laughs> Eugene's version of I don't really want your your songs and your stuff. That's great. <laughs> it is. It'll curl your hair. Well, it will, which that. is this is probably how they heard it in the first place, right? Mm, yeah. But I just want to say, like, Tim, I, I think that what happens is that we hear, first of all, because we're Westerners, for whom everything is filtered through the center of the individual self, right? Yeah. We we don't even and we don't even have the luxury of having a language that lets us see that that's a plural, yeah, right? Yeah. Which is most languages actually people get to see that it's ustedes in Spanish, right? Not two or something, and yeah. and so I think that's that's just hard. And then we've been encouraged to read the Bible in the privacy of our own rooms, and then we privatize that scripture yes. reading to our personal lives. Instead of actually practicing, for instance, the exercise where I will just go with thinking of Romans or First Corinthians um, 6, where these letters are being read out loud in front of the whole congregation guest, right? So if you just do that in your head, like imagine... Lots of people standing around you, and all your dirty laundry is being aired out in front of everybody 
precisely so that the Lord can speak, right? And say, what about that? Like, can we talk about that? And, and so when I hear Paul say that to a church in Rome, to say, this is who you are, right? And you're also this one body by one spirit and one Lord, and you're all these body parts. He's constantly using these beautiful metaphors that both honor the uniqueness of our particularity, right, as a body part. But the body part that has, can do nothing, isn't even named as anything meaningful unless it's attached to something that it can actually serve, right? An eye does this if it doesn't see for the sake of the whole body, or that the eye might see, but without the hand to pick it up, who cares? And so it's not that God doesn't care about our particularity, but it's that we were made to be in relationship. We were made to yes. be in fellowship with a triune God and his people. And that's how we become yeah. who we are. Yeah. So when he, when Paul will say, for instance, um, your bodies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, where he says that only one time in the context of First Corinthians 6, where he's just talking about their life together in terms of who they're going to marry, who they're having sex with, like the fact that your life gets bound to another person's life, something really happens there that is a expression of God's gift of life or a or a perversion or a breaking, right, of life. Mm. And that's where he will say your body, plural. But otherwise, every time he uses that word in any of the epistles, it's always plural. And so I think you feel the question is, can we read these texts, even in the quietness of our bedroom or study or backyard or wherever, and hold the people who we have been given the ones who drive us crazy, the ones we really love, the ones we're ambivalent about, like all of these are the people who God has given us to say are all of you together by cherish the choices you're making today. The person you want to sit farthest from or distance yourself most from, even the pagans do that, right? Since Jesus even in our reading, like who cares? Like so, but if you would, purposefully go and sit next to the other who is not the person who feels most comfortable to you, might this be the space where I can do something that you wouldn't automatically do Hmm. if you're paying attention, right? Might this be the place where there's a seeing that you wouldn't see by your own recognition? Might this be a place where reconciliation can happen that you didn't even know you were holding something against them, which is why you're over there, or you just dislike that? But you've never listened to what makes them afraid that actually makes them act out in that way. Or you've, you, you don't know them compassionately, as I do, but I love all of you compassionately. So, so to just begin to practice, even in my own reading, Lord Jesus, what would it look like for you to make me like you? There is no way to ask him that, that doesn't have him pulling in front of me. Okay. And then I see my neighbors, literally my next door neighbors, right, who are brand new neighbors to us, or seeing the people down the street, or my family, or the church that he's asking us to be part of that we're praying about. That I think that's just the gospel, right? That's the New Testament, which is what we see Matthew doing. Is this is really to the lost sheep of Israel first, but it's because this was God's gift as a people. That in this people, the world would see what God looks like, and 
through this people, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Yes. So hmm. we're going to start with them, but we're sure not going to stop with them. And then Matthew just keeps showing us, especially even in these chapters, what does it look like to extend this to, you know, the least and the lost on the margins of that community or to those who are already ostracized by being a centurion, right? Who's completely outside the storyline for your average Jew or, or the unclean, right? Or it's just like, like all those different stories which just go, wow, like these are not the people Jesus should have been up next to, but he was. And he does it as part of this big picture story of making a new people for his name. Amen. You got anything to add to that? Amen. <laughs> Amen. All right. Uh, last thing, and I want to circle back around to this. Again, this is just a real practical in the, the life of the church in the West, because that's our, that's our context. Uh, this oh. concept of the plural you, you's guys, as, as they like to say where we're from, uh, our worship, and you you talked about this. Our you know our uh, our post enlightenment culture is so about the individual um, that our worship so often is. If you just look at the lyrics of the worship songs that are sung, it's it's me me me, uh, and certainly David speaks of himself in the Psalms. But how? What can we do practically to begin to stop thinking as individuals and understand what our role is as a member of the body um, to encourage the body in worship? Is there is there a tweak or something we can make in a in a Sunday service or in our our gathering together during the week where worship becomes more corporate and less individualized? Do you want to go first? I guess I would just start with something that rings in my head since I was uh, a young teenager when I started actually listening <laughs> to, my, to my dad in a different way. <laughs> but I remember when I was a kid hearing him preach this, and then it finally began to sort of take root um, when I was a teenager. That my dad used to say, God is not saving individuals for heaven. God is making a new creation people for his name. Amen. And that that's really what we're being saved for, right? We're being saved for a resurrection life together as a people with God to minister with God, the life of God in a restored creation. And that our call as eschatological people, as people of the spirit now who've already received the deposit of that final embodied inheritance, we are supposed to be practicing the future in the present. And there's no way to practice being a people for God's name unless you've got a people. And unless the way that you're asking about anything, whether it's communal worship together or anything else, every time it starts with me and then I have to go figure out, oh, and I need to kind of add the community in, we probably just need to quietly sit before the Lord and say, Lord, help me that my initial submission, and that you know this better than anyone, Lord. You know that I came up in this part of the world at this time in history, and that when I talk to my African brothers and sisters or my Hispanic brothers and sisters, or my Asian, they get 
they get what's going on in the scriptures so much better than I do. My Indian daughter-in-law gets the communal aspects of the Old and New Testament in ways that I have to keep going, oh, and that means because I've been wired to be about me first. And she has a, a DNA wiring that sees her as part of a family, always, mm, yeah. right? And so these sort of communal, tribal ways that see us as part of something bigger than ourselves, I envy that because that's part of what God is trying to do in the renewing of my mind is to really teach me that again. Yeah. But I think that that reminder that to really become someone who's, who's coming together as a people gathered is to actually be in an encounter with God, with God's people. Yes. That reminds me that actually I am here at his gift and his invitation precisely to be gift and to invite out of my own life the life of God. And the minute I'm just taking what he's giving to me so I feel better about myself, so I could go do whatever it is that I really want to do and know I've got like a pat on the head or a hug from the Lord to go, then I, those things might be true, but I, I'm still sensitive, right? I, I still can't be human yet. Because the only way to really be a human image bearer with Jesus is to be in relationship with other humans. But that's where our life is really found. So I don't know what kinds of small reminders would need to happen or how they could happen, but I would, I would challenge that in your liturgical life, which as you said, Steve, even if in a non, um, written liturgy every church has its own liturgical form all you have to change one thing up in the service and everybody notices right so <laughs> whether it's to just go when we move from this to this or when we begin to invite people into this part of our time together what are the things that we will say where is the time that we will be quiet right to just hear the breathing of one another to be reminded that the breath of god that has been given to us as gift is shared breath one to the other, right? That if anything happened to me, somebody could lean over and breathe into my mouth the, the gift of God's <laughs> life in my physical body, let alone that the life of the Spirit comes to us as a people, as God's temple gathered in this place, not as an individual temple, it bumping into other temples. I'm a stone, <laughs> a living stone in a construction of God's space that will rub and poke and jar and prod and do all the things that living stones do, that nice, tidy brick doesn't do, but that that's precisely where the mortar of the Spirit will hold us together in something that God can do and be, that tells me if my if I picked up my stone and went to Second Baptist or something instead because I got mad, is in fact the church feeling the absence of that like is the whole building kind of shaking a little bit because our life together really depends on one another and is interdependent with one another and and we recognize the lack of that when it actually occurs that would be such an amazing gift um, mm. in the life of the church so sorry Steve if I took up your time but no uh, you, oh yeah, I'll just that, be quiet. that was terrific that was terrific um, two small practical applications, putting on, as you said, my 
church planter, pastor hat, or I just today wrote a description. Christina and I are going to start a new group, house church, and I wrote a description that I said, you know, we believe that our Christian faith is to be lived out in the context of authentic community, therefore, and then I had three things. So what you're saying is very pertinent today for me. In terms of corporeity, I think, again, when we come into that sacred space as a group, when the presence of the Lord happens, uh, it just isn't vertical anymore. It, it's it's collective. I remember years ago when, when there was that huge move of the Spirit that, that went through in Canada and Toronto and then out in the West Coast, and I was pastoring it, and I would watch these powerful nights where the presence of the Lord was so, so, so strong. And what I noticed was people that I knew, right? I'd been walking with them for several years. When finally we stopped, which, by the way, in those days was two or three in the morning, but when finally we stopped, very few people walked out alone. They walked out together, arm in arm. I never forgot that. So I think that there's something in our corporate expression that we don't try to do. It just happens when the presence of the Lord comes really strongly. And then another very practical thing is, as Tim knows, we learned this from a guy named Wolfgang Simpson 20 years ago. When we gather at our house for whatever kind of a small group, we never start at 7.30 in the living room. We start at 6 o'clock at the dinner table. And if it gets big and it always grows, then you get two tables and then you pull in more. And because, because of what you said, life is lived corporately. Authentic Christian community is an authentic corporate community, yeah. and uh, so those are two little practical things. But you've you've uh, unwrapped some really great things for us today. You know, one other thought is when you when you gather, be ready to be used. Like, be ready to to have the Holy Spirit activate gifts through you. Like show up anticipating, not just to receive, but show up anticipating that the Lord's going to give me words of wisdom or the Lord's going to give me a word of knowledge, word of encouragement, whatever. I, I'm going to get to see the Lord heal somebody through me tonight. And like, the body's built up that in, way. Indeed. First, exactly. first Corinthians 14, 14 26. 26 yep. You know, that, that when you come, <laughs> yep. you come expecting. That's right. To be interconnected, not yes. expecting for the blue spot to come on you because you've no. got a prophetic yeah. word, but but that it's all part of this interconnected. Uh, the, you know, I may be playing with the, the intent a little bit, but in uh, Ephesians uh, 4, I uh, can't remember now if it's 16 or 21, he says, the body is built up by that which every joint supplies. Mm. And it's, it's, it's the coming together and it builds the body up. Yeah. Yeah. I could tell one last story. I don't know how far we're running late, but I, yeah, I remember when I was in junior or in high school, finishing my high school, um, between my junior and senior year, just a really, really, really rough summer. And the year before that, the cost, we moved to um, New England. My dad was teaching at Gordon Conwell Seminary. And I think just the relational cost and the adjustment of trying to be a Jesus follower in New England. Mm was really, took a really big toll on me. And, and I just, I was just hurting. I was hurting over the ways that people hurt you, right? And I remember just finally coming to the place, despite the multiple encouragements of my family, my parents, my church, our house church, 
to just keep hanging in there. I'm like, Lord, is this too much? And it doesn't mean I don't love you or I don't know you. It means that it costs too much to follow you. And I would rather hurt by being alone and lonely than to hurt by trying to lay my life down for other people and then discovering, lo and behold, it hurts when you lay your life down. And I think just as a 16-year-old, like I just thought that counting the cost was really metaphorical, right? And it was starting (laughs) to actually like hurt. And so my parents were gone that summer. They were in Eastern Europe or something teaching. And my my older brother was about to head off to college. He's my best friend. He's one of my best friends and uh, was my best friend then, was still one of my best friends. And, and even to my brother, Mark, like he would come home late at night and I wouldn't open the door to him when he would knock on my door because it just was like, I was just doing this, just completely shrinking in on myself. My parents get back from Europe and they're like, where did our daughter go? Right? Like what's been happening? We've watched this incremental thing, but she's, pretty much disappeared on us. And after a couple of months of quietly, probably just trying to encourage me out of that, I remember a day when my parents came in on a Saturday morning, sat down on the floor of my bedroom. And my dad, who is quick to tears anyway, um, began to just tear up. And he said, you know, Cherith, he said, it's so apparent to me and to mom that something really, really painful has been happening in your life and that it's caused you to want to withdraw and to really cut yourself off from everyone. And he said, and I guess that I just need to tell you today that when the Lord made me to be who I am, lo and behold, he made me to need you in my life to be able to be who I am. And that for you to be who you are, you need me and you need mom and you need the people that he's given to you to love you because we can't be who we are apart from one another. So he said, I'm, I'm just asking you to come home, to come home to the one who loves you, to come home to our family who loves you, to find your life again, because there is no life apart from life together. And and I remember being so mad at him, like, dang, like, I wish he'd, like, scolded me or yelled at me or something, but dang, he said he, he told me the truth, you know, theologically, and, and there was no going away from that. And I think that, that kind of a experience at that stage just sets the stage for me to realize there is no way ever for us to really become who God is making us apart from the cost of love. And so even when we talk about coming ready to be um, invited by the Spirit to offer gifts of the Spirit to one another. I think we have to keep remembering, at least in my life, the place where Jesus is just constantly asking me to really come first is, Cherith, are you ready to love? Mm-hmm. Because that, that is an expression at the other side of corporate worship, having been people who know the love of God, right? In First Corinthians 13, says, you don't come excited because actually I speak to you in the prophetic and you can give that come with a heart so full of love so ready and ready to be shaped out of little love to larger love that the needs of the others who you're gathering with become more important than your own to the point that you would be willing to risk 
something that the spirit would ask you to do on their behalf, even if it doesn't even feel like a gift you're used to giving or you didn't come feeling ready or able. But even your weakness, right, can be the gift to somebody who just needs to know that God's weakness is the place where he shows up strength and that he invites us to come to him as weak ones instead of showing up with our capes on on Sunday morning like super Christmas. So I think we never know what the gift is, but to be able to come going, I need to both receive the love of God, I also need to come ready to be moved as one who loves God and loves what he loves. And if I love enough, he can ask me to do anything, and I would do that out of love. So I think you can't love God or anybody else apart from communal life. Amen. Amen. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's great. That's really good. Thank you, Gordon, right? Like it's, uh, it's Chuck and it's like hung around for 50 years. I have to say thank you to him again. <laughs> I, I, I'm really glad that I have your dad's books on my shelf and uh, they're well thumbed, but I may be going through a little bit again. Hmm. Well, well, bless you. I know he's going to say thank you, but I just yeah. too want to say thank you, Cherith. You you are a real gift to us. You're you're a gift to Impact Nations and to our listeners and viewers, yeah. Yeah. different countries. And um, I'm just sitting here thinking, oh, and I want to take Cherith to this country, and I want her to take her to this country. <laughs> so Sign you know what <laughs> you know what my wife tells everybody about me. Everybody, she says, did you know that God loves you? And Steve has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> <laughs> so my question will always be, Steve, did we listen? <laughs> <laughs> Although there's an impulse in me that is supposed to go, put me on the plane and then we'll listen. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Well, thanks Thank again. Thank you so yeah. much. It's such a joy to be with you. I would love to have the opportunity at some point to just get to see what God is getting to do with you so thank you well, for letting me be part of this little hey thing. thanks for joining us we we receive a lot of fantastic feedback when you're with us and i know we will again this time hey folks uh if you would like to email if you've got questions uh for us to chat about next time we're together uh, you can just send those to podcast at impactnations.com uh as always if you're not catching this live be sure to join us live because then you can type in questions right then and there and we can interact with you as well uh we are here every Thursday at 3 p.m. Mountain Time. Uh, and then we, of course, uh, rebroadcast this or put this out, the audio out on the uh, podcast feed as well. So be sure to subscribe to that so you can listen on your way to work or whatever. Uh, Cherith, is there anything that uh, we can help you plug? What are you up to in the months to come? How can we? Uh, how can people find you and find out what, what you're up to? Yeah. Um, one of the things that, as I mentioned earlier, that just kind of preparing for is the open table gathering um, that Brad Jersak and others who I'm sure you have on this um, are part of, we are beginning a study of the book of Revelation and that too will be on Thursday's live, but it's um, something that I think if you sign up to be part of that, then you can just watch it anytime that you want to. But um, I'm very excited about it because when we did the John study that we did last year, it was such a joy to be part of a, a small gathering of people just reflecting on the word together who are wise people in their long life in the Lord, 
and also just bringing in various levels of expertise that some of them do. But it was such a such a unique space to think, wow, in my academic experience, this is the first time that I spent this many months with a group of people and there's no competition hmm. to see who knows how much, right? Or to make sure that the thing you really wanted to say gets said regardless of whether it's helpful to anything. You know what I mean? It's just this mm-hmm. very precious um, space. And so I have come away every single time from that gathering loving Jesus more. And I just anticipate that this this class will do the same, this study in Revelation. I don't know that that's the same for everybody, but it's been that for me. And so I just wanted folks to know that if you ever felt like that was the unapproachable letter, because it's just confusing to figure out like the good news seemed really good so you got to the end of the book and then it just seemed really bad <laughs> everything goes off um, the rails <laughs> <laughs> this might be a place to just uh, retrieve the beauty of god telling his story in a completely different and what seems to be an upside down way um so yeah anybody who wants to kind of come on board to that um come and join us if you look up um open table conference or John McMurray Open Table. I'm sure all of that information would be readily accessible to you. But, yeah, um, and we'll, we'll include a link in the show notes as well uh, so that people can just click directly to that. And I just want to add my amen because of the uh, Open Table series last year on John was terrific. And actually, as I think about it, We've had Baxter, we've had Brad several times, we've had uh, Paul Young, we had uh, Father Kenneth on about five <laughs> or six weeks ago. Um, and um, so we're... You just need Julie and Chris. And then it's we're, like... <laughs> we're really on track with where the Lord's taking you guys. Bless you. Thank you so much for being with us, Cherith. We'll see you again soon, I'm sure. We'll have you back because this has just been so much fun. Thanks again. All right. God bless.